Let's open our Bibles again to John 7. Let's change plans slightly and go back to John 7 and finish up these nine verses, the Lord helping us, without changing our thoughts and theme from the first service earlier. John chapter 7, we have covered the first three verses. And we have now before us verse 4. His brothers are still talking to him. They began speaking in verse 3, telling him to depart hence and go into Judea for the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. And here they continue, for there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. And so we take up with this fourth verse. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret. They challenged him. If you're truly Israel's Messiah, then show yourself to Israel. Why are you hiding here in the backwoods of Galilee, your home country? Get down there to where all the Pharisees, scribes, and the learned elders of Israel are, the Levites and the priests and others, and, and show yourself to them. The real movers and shakers, both politically and religiously, were in Jerusalem. So go down there and see if you can influence the nation from the center of the nation, from the capital of the nation, from the, the greatest city of the nation, instead of up here in the agricultural and fishing region of Galilee. And so they're challenging him and pushing our Lord, who was their older brother. Their reasoning is, there's no man that doeth anything in secret, and you're being rather secretive, hiding up here in Galilee, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If a man wants to expose himself, and a man wants to increase his ministry, and a man wants to increase his audience, he goes to where the people are, where there can be the greatest influence on the nation. So you should want to go to Judea, to Jerusalem, for this Feast of Tabernacles, is their reasoning there in the second clause of verse 4. Here's the qualifying phrase to give the proper sense for the first clause. The first clause, for there is no man that doeth anything in secret. Well, lots of men do lots of things in secret. We understand that in light of, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If a man wants to be known, he doesn't hide. He gets out in public. And so they're pressing the Lord. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Now that these things they're referring to here are his miracles and preaching in the region of Galilee. If these things are valid, if your miracles are true, if your preaching is correct doctrine, expose it to the scrutiny of the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem. If thou do these things, he did do those things, but they're challenging him. Why don't you expose them to some that may be able to criticize better rather than these uneducated men up here in the backwoods of Galilee? Remember, when a Galilean spoke, everyone knew it. And they knew that about Peter in the first few chapters of Acts, that he wasn't learned, but that he had been with Jesus uh, because of his lack of education. The educated ones were in Jerusalem, and so he's being pressed that if, if you do these things, if thou do these things, if you've really got a ministry... If you're really the Messiah, then show yourself to a larger audience. If you have a divine mandate from God, as you say, then broaden your ministry. If your miracles are by the power of God, then let many others examine them. 
Notice here how the word world is used in a very restricted sense to that of the Jews. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. They did not suggest that he go to Egypt or Phoenicia to convert hated Gentiles. That's not what they were suggesting. Their suggestion is based on the Feast of Tabernacles being at hand and him going to Jerusalem to expose himself there. He had been avoiding Jewry or Judea or Jerusalem because of the danger for his life there. So they're not suggesting Egypt. They did not suggest he do his miracles on an Indian reservation in America in the year 2017 by using the word world. It's disgusting how people want to take the word world and run it to conclude every single descendant of Adam from the creation of the world to the future end of the world in all nations at all times in all capacities. When there's no reason to do that, but let, let the context limit the word world. Their goal was to get him to Jerusalem to celebrate a Jewish feast. Therefore, the world they intended was the majority of the Jewish nation, including its leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, priests, lawyers, that would be in Jerusalem and in Judea. And that's how we understand it. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. They weren't recommending a Mediterranean cruise and stopping at various ports of call and him performing miracles there. They were pressing him to go to Judea, where he hadn't gone in some time because he'd stayed in Galilee. We're, we need this explanation to help us realize that the word world is used in very many different ways in the Bible and determined by context. We also need it because the Lord is going to turn around and speak back to them and use the word that they have chosen, right. world. So we want to understand what they meant because he understands it the same way. Verse 5, For neither did his brethren believe in him, Oh, that's helpful there. That helps us get a, a view of what these brothers were saying in verses 3 and 4 and why. Verse 5 tells us why they're pushing him around, why they're criticizing his ministry, that he's not being very wise, that he ought to be down there in the center of learning and the center of influence of the Jewish nation because they didn't really believe on him. We do not know the degree it was ignorance and the degree it was malice, but it's both by the way they treated him here. And so we have verse 5, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Now, neither means that there's, other, there's another category of Jews that didn't believe in him, and those are the ones that weren't related to him. John 6 described five, ten, or 15,000 that weren't related to him. They didn't believe on him, and so did previous chapters of John. So we have the word neither, used in John chapter 7 and verse 5 to describe these brothers, these biological, physical siblings of Jesus that did not believe on him as well as the Jews that we've previously encountered in the earlier chapters. For neither did his brethren believe in him. These are his biological and physical brothers through Mary, as we learn from Psalm 69. While John 6 hearers might be excused for not knowing Jesus very well. The ones we spent so much time on in John chapter 6, they didn't know Jesus up close and personal like his brothers did. These brothers should have believed on him. This is an amazing statement. This to me is overwhelming 
and it should lead us to give great thanksgiving to God for changing us to believe on his son. What a privilege these sons of Abraham, these children of Mary had to know the Messiah firsthand, in person, up close, for years. They had an advantage way over the apostles. They watched him for 30 years. They watched him work. They watched him at home. Remember, you let your hair down at home. When Jesus let his hair down at home, nothing changed. His character didn't change. And if we're truly Christ, when we let our hair down at home, we don't change in character. We may relax. You may wear a sweatsuit. You may change clothing, but you don't change character. Jesus' character never changed. He was seen as a stranger to them and an alien. Do you remember those words from Psalm 69? A stranger and an alien, and he's their brother. He's their older brother. He's their oldest brother. He's the firstborn son of the family. But he's called a stranger, and they're strangers to him, and he's an alien to them. The Lord Jesus an alien? Is he an alien in your home? Is he a stranger in your home? Is he an alien in your heart? In your vehicle? When you turn the music on? If you turn the world's music on, he's an alien to you because he doesn't listen to that crap. He doesn't listen to that junk. The Bible word is dung if you don't like my four-letter choice that starts with C. The Bible's four-letter choice starts with D. Is he an alien to you? Is he a stranger to you? You know, as we read these words, let's always bring them home to us. This is not an intellectual study of the history of Jesus of Nazareth alone. That's only one tiny part of it. We want it to affect us. Because when I look at that verse, for neither did his brethren believe in him, I have to ask, do I believe in him? How much do I believe in him? Do I love him? Will I do anything for him? And yes, I will. And I want you to answer the same way. We will make up for the fact that his brothers didn't believe in him for a little while. They did believe in him, but not yet. And we didn't believe in him at certain points in our lives, but he changed us to believe in him. Let this be a lesson that no matter how clear the lesson of God's provision is, grace is still necessary to believe. Let us learn that again. If God does not change us by his grace, we will not believe no matter what external circumstances might be put in front of our faces this close. Total depravity. And the gift of faith are clearly evident here by his brothers. The depravity of mankind, the depravity of his own brothers from the same set of genes did not believe on him. And that should cause, that should help us with great understanding how the Lord plucks people out of families, leaving the rest. He plucked the Lord Jesus out of that family, put the Lord Jesus in that family. He didn't pluck him from any evil situation, but he put him in that family and the others did not believe on him. Mary certainly did. Mary pondered those things in her heart. Mary followed him. Even when he was a child, she was listening carefully to the things that he said, like in Luke chapter 2, I must be about my father's business. She heard that because his legal father, Joseph, had a business, but Jesus wasn't referring to that business. Jesus was sitting with the doctors of the law and teaching them about the Bible. And it was his father in heaven's business that Jesus was concerned about. 
total depravity of man is shown by his brothers not believing on him. And the gift of faith is what God must give us to believe. The blindness is like what we learned in chapter 6. In chapter 6, Jesus taught twice. And these are verses that 41, 42, 40 years ago were so precious to me. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. It was obvious that the Father had not yet drawn the brothers of Jesus or they would have come to him. They could have been his closest friends, disciples, followers. They, They may have been in the apostles, but they didn't believe on him. But no man can come. The gift of faith is wonderful. And if you have faith this morning to love the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a gift from God for which you ought to give thanks every day of your life. And you ought to rejoice right now and be glad like the last verse of Psalm 32 told us earlier today. Be glad and rejoice. He's shown such mercy towards you as he promises in that text. In John chapter 6, Jesus said as he drew a close to those people that he had fed, the, five, the, the remnants of the 5,000 that he had fed, as he drew things to a close, and they said, this is a hard saying. Your doctrine is so hard. How can we believe it? And he said back to them, doth this offend you? What an if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. If I were to rise right now back into heaven, it wouldn't help, because it's the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. I am speaking words of spiritual truth and that are about eternal life. And only those with life can apprehend them, comprehend them, receive them, and obey them. Even if he were to ascend back up. And he isn't doing this. He didn't ascend back up. But, uh, oh, brethren, all of his miracles were known by Jesus' brothers. If, If thou do these things. What things? The things they had heard of. Him raising the dead. Him feeding the 5,000. Him calming storms. Him healing the Gadarene. If thou do these things, why don't you go show these things to those down in Judea? They knew about them. That information would have come back to Mary's address so fast as other believing relatives would have shared them with her. She was always interested in the things of her son. What blindness. Remember if Timothy obeyed God's will as a great minister? Paul said, if God peradventure will give repentance to the acknowledging of the truth to those that you preach to, Timothy. Timothy couldn't convert a man unless God gave him repentance. Even Jesus in the same house for 30 years didn't convert his own brothers unless God gives repentance. Have you repented? It's a great gift from God. He has pulled a peradventure for you out of his gracious, eternal purpose and will to save us. The Bible says not one, including Jesus' brothers, understand and seek after the things of God. Remember Psalm 14? The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after him, and he did not find a single one. Paul quoted that in Hebrews chapter 3. Verse, verses 10 and 11, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, every single one, including the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is total depravity. 
external advantages do not produce faith, but by the grace and power of God. We are part of a Christian community here, a large one, a lot of Baptists in Greenville County, and there's a lot of evangelical Christians today, but they think that external advantages can influence people for the gospel. That is not true. My brother, one of my brother Paul's favorite verses about the depravity of man is Isaiah 26 and verse 10, where it says this, Let favor be showed to the wicked. Let's treat them really nice. Let's have Awana and Boy Scouts and youth groups and lots of activities. Let's treat them nice. Let's adopt them. Let's take them in. Let's house them for a year. Let's do all that we can for them. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. The majesty of the Lord can be right in front of him. You can lead him to it. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink, and you can't make them behold the majesty of the Lord with affection, submission, and obedience. This change is, is not just a doctrinal point. It's has he done that for you? Right. If he's done that for you, we owe him the rest of our lives. Because he's made such a great change in us. And let's live for him. But it says, let favor be showed. It will not work. External advantages do not produce faith. Faith is produced by the power of God. Faith is not produced by the wisdom of men. Faith is not produced by the eloquence of men. Thus, the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2 that we went over this morning, we jumped over them to get to verses 6 through 8, because Paul said he dumbed down the message. He didn't want to use the wisdom of man's words. He didn't want to use human eloquence. He didn't want to use his oratorical skills that he had developed and learned in school. He just wanted to lay the truth out there, the ugly truth of Jesus Christ crucified on a cross as the redeemer of his elect. And if someone believed it, then they were showing the power of God in their lives. He did not want them converted by his persuasive ability in the pulpit. And we do not want men converted by us being super friendly toward them. We draw lines. Sometimes you may wonder why certain people may be sort of cut off, not excluded church members, evangelistic efforts. I wonder if the pastor has gone after them recently. You should ask me. Many times I'm going to tell you, no, I haven't. I don't want them here because of a friendly pastor or a friendly pastor's wife or a friendly church. I want them here because they love the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and want to live it out of love toward him, not out of a group, a church, friends, friendliness, and a friendly pastor. No way. So they get cut off. I don't chase. We lay so much truth out there right in front of their eyes. If they don't want the truth for the truth's sake, if they don't want the truth for the Lord's sake, I don't want them to want the truth for any other reason. And so it's, there's a reason for it. And it's Paul's reasoning from 1 Corinthians 2, because we don't want their faith to stand in the wisdom of men. We don't want their faith to stand in the friendliness of men. We don't want their faith to stand in the social interaction of the Church of Greenville. We want their faith to stand in the power of God. 
that God has changed them and they want Jesus Christ. These brothers did not want Jesus Christ on that ground. Family opposition, my dear brothers and sisters, family opposition is part of the call of Jesus Christ and a cost of discipleship of following him. So we shouldn't be surprised by this verse. We've learned these things before. Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 10 that a sword would divide families. He did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew 10, 34 through 37. So that's part of the call of Christ. He taught to count the cost of losing family before you commit to baptism to become a disciple of his. Luke 14, when a multitude was following him, he said to them, he turned and said, if you do not hate... And he then he listed all the dear relationships of family. If you do not hate all those relationships in your family, yea, in your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. So count up the cost. A king that's got 20,000 meeting a king with 30,000 sits down and determines with his generals, is it possible? If not, he sends an ambassador with a white flag to make peace because he counted up the cost. When a man's going to build a tower, he needs to sit down with architects and engineers and construction companies and determine what is it going to cost to build this tower to make sure I can finish it. Lest he only get it partly done and he has an unfinished tower to the shame of his name forever. Jesus used those illustrations to say, don't get baptized unless you're going to follow me. And following me includes giving up all other relationships to do what I want you to do above them. And so here Jesus is in that same situation. You know, we often think if I'd have been a better father, oh, are you serious? Every single man in here could have been, should have been a better father. Every woman in here could have been, should have been a better mother. Do you want to say Jesus should have been a better brother? I don't think so. He was a perfect brother, but it didn't matter. God has to change them. Do you get any peace from that? He was perfect. What a shame. What a shame our Lord had to defend himself from his younger brothers. It reminds us of righteous men being opposed by their siblings. What happened to Abel? Was he in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, he was. Is he in Hebrews chapter 11? Yes, he is. Abel, what happened? His brother killed him. Why? Because he was good. Why did the brothers of Jesus hate Jesus? Because he was perfect. That had been hard to live with. Ever hear the words goody, goody, two shoes? Uh, Jesus was perfect, perfect everything. Not Not just his shoes. He was perfect everything. What a, what, a, what a son, what a brother, what a savior, what a redeemer, what a creator right there in their home. Amen. You know, he was probably on the top bunk because older brothers want the top bunk. Maybe. I did. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> can, you, can you believe the Lord of glory in the same room on a bunk bed? And they didn't believe. This verse has just over, overwhelmed me. And it makes total depravity so personal and so up close and in families rather than just a doctrinal concept. Joseph and his brethren. Does it remind you of Joseph? Why'd they hate him? 
because he was good. His father loved him. He was blessed and favored, just like Jesus was. What about David? Did his brothers love him? No, they should have loved him. Jesus also prophesied of how brothers would betray brothers. Did he tell his apostles, there's a time coming when all men are going to persecute you and brothers will turn you over to the authorities. Your brothers are going to come after you. Jesus knew from first-hand experience that his brothers, no matter how he had lived, did not believe on him. And they were basically trying to turn him over to the Jews by getting him to go to Judea. They wanted him to go down there and expose himself to mortal danger because that's why he was in Galilee. They wanted to kill him. We've already been told these things as we read this Holy Spirit account of Jesus' life. We're given hints to understand the context around these exchanges. For neither did his brethren believe in him. The unbelief that Jesus met with throughout his ministry proves total depravity. How could you watch miracles and not believe? How could you hear about Lazarus being raised from the dead and want to kill Jesus and Lazarus? That's what the Pharisees... Now, that's, that's an intelligent meeting. That's a committee meeting of the Pharisees. When you get together, what do we do? We have a man raised from the dead after four days. If we don't get this thing stopped, everyone's going to be following him. Well, why wouldn't you just say, guys... We, the Messiah is here. Right. Let's go serve him. Yep. Why would you say, let's kill him? And since we've got Lazarus to deal with, since he was dead in his back now, let's kill him too. <laughs> what makes a person do that but total depravity? John, John 6 hearers might be excused because they didn't know him as well. But how could these brothers? There was so much evidence to believe on him as Israel's Messiah. Did they never ask or explore his personal differences with Joseph or Mary? Hey, Mom and Dad, when were you married? Date. When was Jesus born? Date. That's kind of fast. Are you with me? Should, should conversations like that have taken? Absolutely. Why not? Then Mary could have said, and how do we know she didn't? Isn't that, whatever was said didn't mean any difference, didn't make any difference, whatever was said. There's so many questions that could have been asked. Did the Judean sky split open the night he was born? Did the angels announce it? Were there wise men from the east? Were gifts given? Did he have to travel to Egypt? Did he come, was there a star overhead? Hello? It wouldn't matter. Right. We live in the evangelical age of method. That if you can just learn the new method of the new generation, they'll flock to Jesus. Are you kidding me? Look what the Bible says. The ones closest to the real Jesus, not the fake Jesus that they're presenting, but the ones closest to the real Jesus didn't believe on him. It's such a lesson for us. Did they not know their Bibles and the prophecies that are there about him and that he fulfilled them perfectly, including dated prophecies? Was there a dated prophecy that they could have been check checking off the days in the calendar? Ah, 483 years is done. Messiah's got to be here. Oh, Jesus was just baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. Oh, oh no, they didn't do any of that. None of that. They did not see those things. 
And unless the Lord makes dots connect and the Lord brings concepts together, it's like I said a few moments ago talking about a family sitting in this assembly. As a Calvinist, I saw men walking as trees. But then I heard the truth. But the Lord has to do that. The Lord had to do that here. The Lord had to do that here. The Lord had to do that by getting me to the right place. The Lord had to do it there by extending an invitation. The Lord had to call a man, ordain a man, send a man. And the Lord had to open his mouth with the right subject, the right night for me to hear it and to be converted. Right. It's all of God. Salvation is of the Lord, as Jonah would say. Salvation is of the Lord. They didn't know their Bibles nor the prophecies there about their own brother. Didn't they know the message of John the Baptist clearly identified him? Did they not recognize the power behind his miracles that others knew about? Did they not hear him speak in ways that they could only marvel about? In this chapter, there's going to be men sent from the Pharisees to apprehend Jesus and bring him back. And they're going to come back empty-handed. And the Pharisees are going to say, why didn't you bring him? Never man spake like this man. Why didn't his brothers pick up on that? Was 30 years not long enough? How did those sheriffs or those, those magistrates sent by the Pharisees not... They picked up on it in just a few minutes. Did they not recognize the perfect life that was very different from theirs? All of this is to remind you, God has had mercy on your soul. That is why you are here. That is why you love him. That is why you have an open Bible in your lap or nearby or an open cell phone with a Bible app because you care about the word of God. You care about its prophecies. You care about its person. Its personage is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man right here. Let none take comfort in saved parents or siblings. I speak to every single one of you right now. Because you have saved parents or saved siblings, take no comfort in it for DNA did not help them at all. Blood does not save. As John wrote earlier in this gospel, it is not of blood. In John 1, 13, except his blood. There is blood that makes a difference, and it's the blood of Christ. For we're all the seed of Abraham by Jesus Christ and his shed blood for us that brought us into that family. Our Lord's real family is those who believe and obey. Look at Luke 8 with me. Luke chapter 8, for two great, oh brethren, how can I stir you up to want to say within yourself, I want to make up for those brothers. I will believe on him. I will never falter in my faith in him. I will love him. I will serve him. I will promote him. I will defend him. I will obey his commandments and keep his religion and promote his church. I will do those things to make up for those brothers. There's a way you can. You ready to be the brother of Jesus? Luke chapter 8, verse 19. Then came to him his mother and his brethren. Isn't that so obvious what brethren means? His mother and his brethren. Is that family or not? Is that cousins? Does the mother give birth to cousins? No, I don't think so. Then came to him his mother and his brethren and could not come at him for the press. Luke 8.20, And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, 
My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. That's pretty simple. They hear the word of God and do it. There's a lot of word of God heard in this church. There's a lot of things to do. Are you doing them? Doesn't matter what you say. He didn't say anything about talking, did he? He didn't say anything about believing, did he? He said being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. You hear and do. In, in his short little response, my mother and my brethren are these. And he is not ashamed to call us brethren in Hebrews chapter 2. Turn just a couple of pages to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, and we have the first Mariolater. A Mariolater is a Roman Catholic because they worship Mary no matter what they tell you. When they pray the rosary, which is 165 prayers by three loops through a chain of beads that has 10 Hail Mary prayers for every Our Father which art in heaven prayer. So I guess they, they only worship Mary 10 times how much they worship God, right. Our Father which art in heaven. I don't care what they say. They have statues of Mary everywhere. And they want to talk about Mary being a co-redemptrix with the Lord Jesus Christ, and on and on they go. Here's the first one. Let's watch it develop. Verse 27, And it came to pass, as he spake these things, Luke eleven twenty-seven. And it came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. Women are strange sometimes, aren't they? They get just a little too caught up in childbirth. But this woman just went off. Blessed is the uterus that was around you for nine months, and blessed are the breasts that you nursed from. Oh, please, can we think a little higher? Do you know what the Bible says? Jesus was born in the lowest parts of the earth. Go ahead and take and develop that one. Here's, a, here's the first Mary Oliter. She's praising the childbirthing aspects of Mary rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, the Son of God, our only redeemer and our only mediator. Here's the response of our Lord. But he said, that's a great idea. I think in my church, you're going you're gonna to pray 10 Hail Marys for every Our Father. No, he didn't quite say that. He said, yea, rather, there's a whole better thing that you ought to be focusing on. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Is that the same thing that we just read moments ago? Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Is it was it blessed to be the mother of Jesus? A little bit. Was it blessed to nurse Jesus? A little bit. She nursed a whole lot of babies after him. What is blessedness? Blessedness is hearing the word of God and keeping it. And we're hearing it right now from John 7 by the pen of our brother John and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the preservation of his providence that preserved it to us in our language. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Do you want to keep his word? You're blessed to have that conviction. You're hearing it, so you're blessed. Thank you, Lord. Do you know what happened to the brothers of Jesus? They got messed up. Grace messed them up. Mm -hmm. 
After the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, they became believers. When you get to Acts chapter 1, within, inside of 50 days after Passover, within, inside of 50 days after Jesus dying on the cross, they are already in the upper room. Do you want to see it? Look at Acts chapter 1. And let's see these same brethren. This is the grace of God. This is not the resurrection by itself. I commend Shane for making this point at break time. He's all, he was already thinking ahead. And I don't flatter, but I do commend and praise young men that are thinking about the Word of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 13. The apostles have seen Jesus ascend up into heaven, and now they go back to Jerusalem. Acts 1, 13. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. This is the upper room that you've read about. Where abode both Peter and James, and John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Elphias, and Simon Zelotus, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. They're converted. Those brothers that didn't believe did believe. And so shortly after his resurrection, we find them together right here. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Oh, thank you, Lord. The power of grace in the family of Mary. Paul is defending his apostleship to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 3, mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Do we not have authority as apostles to have our daily needs supplied by you Corinthians? Of course, he's not talking about just the power to eat or to drink. He's talking about the right to eat or drink at their expense. Verse 5, have we not power to lead about a sister? Don't we have the right as apostles to have a wife? as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas, Peter had a wife, he's appealed to by Paul, the brothers of Jesus had wives, and are appealed to by Paul as carrying great weight with the early churches, because they were converted and were considered outstanding Christians in the new church, that, in the new church of churches that was being established. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Shane's point to me at break time was, Jesus said, and it's been preached recently from John chapter 6, that though a man rose from the dead, it wouldn't help. Right. But these brothers of Jesus believed on Jesus after he rose from the dead. Well, putting those, how do we make those two fit? There had to have been a work of grace in there to make the difference. Because Jesus rising from the dead was not all that more dramatic or powerful or weighty than the things he had already done in the area of Galilee. Right. What's the difference between rising from the dead and feeding 5,000 with a lad's lunch and having 12 baskets full left over? And on and on we could go. But it's the, it's the grace of God in there that made it different. And from a timing standpoint... God arranged for their conversion. We don't know the moment of their regeneration, 
when they became followers of their oldest brother. Now here's the Apostle Paul, and Galatians chapter 1 is just a beautiful testimony that his gospel was straight from Jesus Christ and not from men. And so he says that Jesus revealed, God revealed his son in me, verse 16, Galatians 1, 16, when it pleased God to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. I didn't go ask anyone on earth what I was supposed to preach. I was called on the road to Damascus by a very bright light and met the Lord Jesus Christ in person there. I did not go confer with anyone on earth. Verse 17, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. I didn't go to check out the, 11, the 10 that were left, but I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. Then after three years, for three years he was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ in Arabia, then went back to Damascus. He still hasn't been to Jerusalem, the center of the Christian religion. And he's telling you that. I certify you, brother, the gospel I preach, I didn't get from men. It's just a powerful chapter. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. And when you go to Acts 15, and you have that very important council at Jerusalem that could have split the church, when they all came together, all the apostles and elders came together, what do we do with converted Gentiles? Paul spoke about what he had done. Peter spoke about having opened up the gospel to the household of Cornelius. Then they all sat back and one man took over. James, the Lord's brother. Because James, the son of Zebedee, was killed in chapter 12 with his head being cut off by Herod. Praise the Lord for a work of grace in a family. And so you keep praying and you keep waiting and you trust the grace of God. He is perfect. He's a perfect potter. He has never made a vessel to dishonor that should have been a vessel to honor. And he's always made vessels of honor from vessels that should have been dishonorable. Do you agree with that? You should have been dishonorable, but he made you honorable. And we're going to leave it with him, the ones that he leaves dishonorable. But we don't know his timing. These brothers of Jesus didn't know his timing in John chapter 7. And we want to submit to his timing. And let's get back there or our time will expire. Thank you, Lord. Verse 6. Then Jesus said unto them, Jesus now answers his brothers. His brothers spoke in John 7, verses 3 and 4. We have a Holy Spirit piece of information for us in verse 5. And then Jesus answered them. Verse 6. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now this is interesting language. We have a tendency to always want to see redemptive or spiritual sense only on words. There is a double sense on these words. He is saying, I'm not ready yet to go to the feast. Why don't you guys go ahead without me? You know, you go ahead and go on down there. I'm not quite ready. As soon as I get ready, I'll go. And it's nothing more than him saying, I'm not ready to go at this time because as soon as they left, he did go. 
And he's told us why he's there. He's afraid of the danger. The last thing he wants to do is go with a crowd of unbelievers called his brothers that are going to do a bunch of tongue-wagging to get him in trouble with the elders down there in Jerusalem because they want to help him expand his ministry. And I'm being kind and sarcastic at the same time about them. Are Are you with? These words have a double sense because there was a time that Jesus knew was for him to go to Jerusalem to face the full wrath of the Jews and be tortured by them and falsely accused and crucified by the Romans on a cross. And that is there, but the immediate context is not that. It's the timing of going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. If he had not allowed that double, they would have stopped and there would have been more to this exchange because they would have wanted to know what in the world is he talking about? His time is not yet. See, we understand it because you have the rest of the book of John. Do you you know what I mean by that? I mean verse 30. Look at John 7, 30. They sought to take him. This is in Jerusalem. The Jews sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Now, what hour is that? When he'd be ready to go down to the Feast of Tabernacles? No. His death of crucifixion on the cross. How about 8.20? These words spake Jesus in the treasury... As he taught in the temple, John 8, 20, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. They couldn't touch him because God intervened to protect him. Uh, then we get over to John chapter 12 and verse 23. It's a pleasure to preach expositorily to you because I get to cheat and go ahead. Okay? And I get to lead you as if there wasn't an ahead. We're just still at John chapter 7 and verse 6, but I already know what lies ahead, and so it helps us understand what's at the present. But I want you you to understand that the Lord's words are beautiful in John chapter 7. He's basically talking to them on their level that I'm just not quite ready to go yet. Why don't you guys go ahead without me, and, uh, you know, we'll catch up later or whatever. You know, as soon as they left, he took off in secret because he didn't want to go in a group. It's going to call too much attention to himself. He's going to get in trouble and get killed down there. And he's trying to do his part to wait for the Lord's timing. And the Lord's doing his part to keep it from happening because the Lord had to intervene in verse 30. But let's let's look at 12.23. In John 12.23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. See, 12 is right there just a few days in front of his crucifixion. Now he's saying the time is here. Back to John 7. I don't want to make this confusing. I want to make it very enlightening to you and very exciting that Jesus is dealing with them on one level and we get to read it later with understanding of John 7.30, John 8.20, John 12.23 and see in it that there was more. The the terminology is such that we just want to grab something redemptive about the words and, and miss the practical. But the practical is there because their they're pressing him is entirely practical. And what he does is entirely practical. As soon as they left, he went to Jerusalem. He wasn't waiting for, oh, brethren, he's going to go back to Galilee. This is, this is early on. He's got another year or so to go before, before Passover. He's got time. He goes back to Galilee after John 7 and 8 and so forth. The Bible tells us that. Oh, I can't find it right now. It's, I believe it's John chapter 11, the first few verses. But nonetheless, I can't see it right now. He goes back to Galilee, then he goes back to Jerusalem again where he is killed. So when he departs, it's going to tell us that in verse 9, when he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee, 
But when his brethren were gone up, verse 10, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. And why did he go when he said, it is not my time to go? Because he didn't want to go with them. He wanted them to leave without him. And yet to us, we know that there's another time coming when he's going to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. But he did go up to Jerusalem. Then he came back because that trip wasn't the trip that he was going to be crucified on. He came back to Galilee and then went up again. But let's get back to verse 6. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. See, he's using the word time in a way that if we apply it consistently, they're not going to the cross at any time. He says, your time is always ready. He is saying, you can expose yourself to the world anytime you want to. You can go to the feast anytime you want to. You can go down and mingle with the Jews in Jerusalem anytime you want to. I can't do it the way you do it. He's dealing practically. They understood it practically because they left him alone and went on. He was just saying, I, I have some other things to take care of. And who knows what he had to take care of? Do you know what? It could have been one more soul to be converted in Galilee. There are commentators that say right then, after they left, he ordained the 70. I can't prove that from a Bible. But they say in, the, in, the, in mixing the four, in, 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 in analyzing and combining the four gospel accounts that he ordained the 70. Now that's huge to say, it is not my, my time is not yet full come. I'm not ready to go yet. So let's understand it practically, and then for us, we know that there's going to be a trip to Jerusalem different from any other, and he's going to die a crucifixion death there for us. So Jesus said to them, he's answering them, pushing him to go to Jerusalem, that my time is not yet come. We have a strong bias to always get everything, to make everything spiritual, and I want to make everything spiritual that we should make spiritual, but I want to do it based in the context of exactly what's being said. And what's being said is, he was in Galilee to protect his life. And he went to the feast minutes or hours after they went ahead without him. Because he couldn't go with them. It would have been a violation of his whole plan. And that was to arrive in the midst of the feast when some of the pressure of looking for him would have been reduced and not to have gone with a group of unbelievers that wanted to expose him to the Jews. It's just beautiful. And so he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. There's no reason for you to hesitate. Get on down to Jerusalem. You know, I have reasons to be cautious about going down there. I'm not ready yet. I have other things to do. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come, meaning I'm not ready to go up to this feast right now. But I will go up to this feast, but I'm not ready right now. And yet we understand it, that he'll be going up there soon enough for a purpose far greater than visiting the Feast of Tabernacles, but to lay down his life for us and keep the Feast of Passover and then turn it in to the Lord's Supper. There's many, th many more things that could be said about this. Here's what happens. Because you've got language, and he, you've got language right here that sounds like 738, 20, and 12, 23, my time has not yet come. Just remember, what's one of our chief rules of Bible study? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Mm -hmm. So when you get words that, are, that sound the same or similar to each other, that doesn't mean that they're the same thing. Right. We've got to look at the context. The context is our master. He is not giving them some deep lesson 
about he is going to die for his people on the cross of Calvary, and it's time to die is not yet. Because he did go up. He did go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and didn't die and came all the way back to Galilee and went again at least another time. The Lord helped them all see it. When we make it thus practical, we can still see a broader sense of the future so we can see the spiritual sense of the words that they couldn't see because they were so blind to him and his purpose in life. And so they understood him practically. They understood about the danger down there in Jerusalem that he was practically going to take his time and come differently. He had other things to do. He wasn't quite ready to go yet, and yet we can see the words, boy, the Lord knew that there was going to be a trip to Jerusalem far different from any other, and it was not yet. But that's not the focal point of here because of verse 1 telling us it was dangerous in Jerusalem, and that's why he was in Galilee, and because of verse 10 that he went up as soon as his brothers got out of town. Jesus said unto them in verse 6, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Time for what always ready? To die? To go to Jerusalem. You can go to Jerusalem anytime you want to. There's no problem down there. There's no danger down there for you. I'm at risk down there, so I'm going to go when I'm ready. And I'm not ready right yet. My time is not yet full come to go down there. I'm going to go down the middle of the feast. You know what we're going to find out in John 7? He arrives in the middle of the feast. Do you know what they're all doing at the first of the feast? Everybody is talking about where's Jesus of Nazareth. It's a feast. Every male has to be here. Where's Jesus of Nazareth? Where, guess when he arrives? A little later. And so he said, my time is not yet full come. Do you know Jesus operated by a specific, very definite timeline his entire life? He did everything the Father told him to do. Right. If it was time to cross the sea in a storm to find one Gadarene, guess what he did? He crossed the sea in a storm, calmed the storm, met the Gadarene, converted him, and came back across the sea. Everything he did was, did was according to schedule. And so this is his schedule. My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you. You don't have any threat down there in Jerusalem. Get on down there. But me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Had he testified in Rome that the works thereof were evil? Phoenicia? Egypt? Hittites? Mongolia? No. Where had he testified of their works? Oh, yes! That we've learned it in the first chapters of John. He drove the money changers out of the temple. He healed on the Sabbath day. He exposed them down there in Jerusalem. They hated him for it. And so we have the world continuing to be defined as the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and including their elders that hated him so much. The scribes, the Pharisees, lawyers, Levites, and priests. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Let's remember that. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Why did it hate Jesus Christ? Because he testified against it. He told them what they were doing was wrong, and this is what they ought to do to please their Father in heaven, to please the God in heaven that they claimed to be their Father and that they worshiped. And we want to have a ministry, we want to have lives, and when we talk about Christ, we want to get close, we want to get quickly to be like him, and that's pointing out what's being done wrong and how it ought to be done right. And that's to have a ministry like Christ, and you know what it's going to result in? Men hating you. If I was better evangelistically, more people would like me. That is not true. If you were like Christ evangelistically, men will hate you for it. Because you're going to point out the deficiencies in their lives and that they're doing things wrong and they need to do them right. That's what Jesus did and they hated him for it. And he tells us exactly why right there. He's already taught us this in John chapter 3 and verse 19. No man comes to the light because he doesn't want his evil deeds exposed by the light. And who was the light? He was the light. 
The world cannot hate you. You're of the world. You're of the same ilk of the world. You're like the world. You think of them like they do. They think, you think of me like they do. You're like them against me. You can go down there and have no problem. You can mingle and mix with them and eat with ease. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. He's dealing very practically with the situation in Jerusalem and Judea right then, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. Go ye up by yourselves. I go not up yet unto this feast. This feast. Not the Passover when he would be crucified. This feast I go not up yet, for my time is not yet full come. To go up to this feast on one level, and to go up to die for us on another spiritual level. I hope you can see it. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast. This feast! For my time is not yet full come. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit that thing in the middle. Oh, he's not afraid. He, well, we're going to learn it. We're going to read it in just a few verses. He's not afraid. He gets there in the middle and he cuts loose. And he, he, bring, he brings up John 5, 16 through 18. You'd think he'd wait for them maybe to bring it up. No, he brings up the fact that he healed on the Sabbath day and they wanted to kill him for it. And they say, who wants to kill you? Oh, he just needs a few more sentences and they want to kill him. <laughs> uh, and that's the way our Lord did things. But it was not yet his time to go up there to that feast. I, I know, I know oh, listen, brethren, how many, what do you think happens in my office? I read it. Oh, this has got to be referring to 738, 20, and 12, 23. This has got to be referring to this feast. Oh, as soon as they left, he left. He was, and you know, you just, you just brought back by the contextual deductions around it that this is dealing practically with his brothers to get them out the door and on down to Jerusalem because as soon as they left, he followed right behind them incognito, not wanting to draw a stir to himself until the middle of the feast. And then he'll, draw a stir, then he'll, he'll create a stir. And it's a glorious one. Verse 8, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And so it tells us what this exchange is about. I don't want to go with you. You want me to go openly. You're going to be wanting to tell everybody about your brother. This is Jesus of Nazareth. We've brought him along. We've brought our brother. You're going to get me in trouble, expose my life. I'm going to do it my way. I have a, I have a timetable to keep that is set by heaven. The God, my Father, has given me wisdom to know when I ought to appear at that feast, and I'm on schedule. My time isn't with yours. You go ahead and go. And then he went. And he's going to show us exactly what God wanted him to do in the rest of this chapter. Amen. Verse 5 is the most important verse to leave a practical effect in our lives. Neither did his brethren believe in him. Do you believe in him? If you believe in him, how thankful to him are you? If you believe in him, how much do you love him? If you believe in him, how do you show that you are his real brother? It was Luke 8 and Luke 11. They that hear the word of God and keep it. The word of God addresses every part of our lives. It addresses our marriages. It addresses our finances. It addresses our eating and drinking. It addresses our time. 
it addresses our service, it addresses our praying, it addresses our, how we relate to our government, it addresses how we relate to our children, how we relate to our parents, it addresses every part of our lives. If we're the real brothers of Jesus Christ, it's not enough to say I believe on him, I've been to church today, that should show that I believe on him. You should look at whatever he and his apostles have said on how you ought to live and do it. And if it takes a change, change it. If you need to repent and confess your sins, remember Psalm 32 and go back to it later today and confess your sins. He will forgive you and embrace you and surround you with his mercy. And we go forward passionately for him with great joy and gladness that he has saved us, granted us repentance to acknowledge the truth, and he has shown, he has said, let there be light in our hearts to show the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those brothers had his face there in their home for 30, 25, 20, or 15 years, and they did not believe. We have never seen his face, but do you know what Jesus has to say for us? That we are blessed for believing on him without ever seeing his face. Let's show it by doing what he said. Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Amen. Amen.